Kia ora, everyone, and welcome to The Word, or Kupu, for episode number six. Today, on the 26th of October, 2021, we are speaking with the amazing Natalie Kiriako. Natalie is an environmentalist, social entrepreneur, and a wildlife consultant on various projects. She's an absolutely incredible woman, and we were so lucky to get her on the podcast, um, where we talk about everything from her early experiences in protecting animals, be that elephants around the world or orangutans in Borneo. And we talk about her startup, her company, My Green World, which works in different facets of youth education, both in trying to inspire the youth to become more active in wildlife conservation and also in directly helping fund various wildlife charities around the world with her game the world of the wild um yeah so unfortunately we had some technical issues on this one and the interview got cut short and then we were going to try and finish it again and natalie unfortunately obviously she's completely booked out and so hopefully we might get her on again next year and so you gotta forgive when the interview abruptly cuts out but yeah hopefully we'll get her on again early next year and yeah enjoy this it's yeah a very interesting talk about how we can actually make a difference to our planet and create a more sustainable world for all so without further ado let's welcome natalie to the show Hi, Natalie. Can you hear me? I can. Excellent. How are, How are you? you? I'm doing good. Doing good here. How about you? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Are you in Melbourne at the moment? Well, I'm originally from Melbourne, but three months ago I moved to Sydney and I was right in time for Sydney's lockdown. So I think three oh. days of my newfound freedom, we went into lockdown. Oh, no. So what, what's happening in Melbourne is the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's essentially the same thing. Um, Sydney's just come out of lockdown and Melbourne's due to come out tomorrow or today, I think. Oh, so Sydney has come out, actually. Yeah, yeah. Some restrictions, obviously. Yes, yeah. Yeah, How are you? Um, We're good. So I'm in the South Island of New Zealand, so we're in quite a um, remote area, so we didn't really suffer too much i mean we had a full-on lockdown last year but in this recent delta outbreak we've actually had amazing freedoms and we're still allowed to go around and i mean obviously mask wearing but yeah everything we're still allowed to play sports and go to the beach so in auckland and you guys obviously as well um what sparked your move was that just something you felt like a change or yeah it was a little bit of an escape we'd endured i think it was six lockdowns i think melbourne holds the record for the most locked down city in the world and yeah it, it the city you feel it it's it's almost a population of heavily traumatized people so i thought yeah i would go to sydney where there's um sunnier weather and they hadn't had many lockdown they hadn't really had any lockdowns um and then yeah just my luck they, they went oh my goodness the longest lockdown ever <laughs> 
just right with, after you'd moved. Oh my exactly, lord! Exactly. Yeah. But now you can kind of get to know the city, which I suppose you've been there before, haven't you? And you kind yeah, of... I've been there before, and so I've, I've I've spent a lot of time, you know, getting to know the city from the inside of my apartment. But it is yeah. it's, still, it's still lovely. <laughs> and what about in terms of your work? Are is your team? Are you guys all working remotely, or is? Yeah, we've been equipped you... to work remotely from from when we started. So. Um, oh wow! Awesome. It hasn't been a, a huge transition, actually. It's been it's been fine. I've been quite. So you, you don't have a headquarters or an office somewhere. No, I have. Um, so I do. I work for both my company and also at PwC, um, and both. Yeah. Are, both are virtual. So yes, I'm, oh, I'm very excellent. fortunate. Yeah. And so, did you? Was it just you moving, or your animal? That you have got dogs as well, I think, or something. You? Yeah, I have. Um, one of my dogs passed away earlier this year. Oh, um, so sorry. Yeah, sort of my my last link to Melbourne. My parents have another dog, um, so Hector is still with my parents. But I've oh. been doing some foster care while I'm in Sydney. So I just I recently oh, wow. um a litter of five one week old kittens and the mother. <laughs> so that was what? that was fun. So how do you go about doing that? You just sign up and say you're Yeah, just contacted a few shelters and uh checked if they needed any volunteers or foster carers and um one got back to me and said, Oh, we've got some some kittens and a mum that, that need oh my care. God. So I, I <laughs> it was very cute. So you've got six Six other house guests. Yes. Now. Well, they recently they went up for adoption just two days ago. So um, I haven't got them anymore. Okay. But um, I was with them for the first few weeks of life, which was really adorable. Wow. How young does that? How young would have that been then? So I, I had them from... when they were uh, one week old, which they, they basically they looked like rat babies. They were so tiny. Yeah. Um, and then no hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then. Uh, yeah, I have had them for four weeks. So wow, they were very cute. Amazing. So you can just for people that want to do something like that, you just basically contact shelters, and they then do they do a kind of a check on you or background yeah. check or they just yeah it can be a little bit tricky i've been doing it for about 10 years so i've built okay. a little bit of a, a foster carer cv um yeah <laughs> amazing so they they normally will do some training sessions um and they need to yeah. be careful because i think some people will contact shelters and say i'm looking for a french bulldog puppy to foster can we do that and the shelters <laughs> oh, like, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah it doesn't work like that <laughs> yeah red flag um <laughs> yeah. And I suppose that would have gone up during lockdown and all that probably fostered. Oh, yeah, yeah. everybody wants a, a temporary some company. Um, and also the other way around, that people have been abandoning animals or how is that? Not, not, not so, so much, much, actually. Yeah, it's the shelters have been doing, well, generally in Australia, the shelters have been doing really well. People are spending more time with their pets because they're home, they're... Oh, wow, yeah. I think that that bond between the, the pet and the human and... Um, people yeah. are adopting a lot more, watching over their pets a lot more, so they're not escaping. So it has—it's been good news for the animal community in a lot of ways. It's been good, good news all around, actually, for the natural world and all animals. <laughs> yeah. 
So when it comes to the foster, how does that, is it basically animals that get abandoned end up in foster care? Do they get actively brought there or do they get found on the street? It's a mix. It's a mix. So you'll have some people that will abandon their pets that, it could be range of circumstances, people that are moving or unwell and can't look after their pets anymore. Um, it might yeah. be uh, people whose pets are escaped and they, they don't want them anymore, people whose dogs yeah. are barking too much and they don't want them, or it might be um, that street street cats, street cats having litters of kittens. Um, so there's all sorts of yeah. reasons. Um, the, my case We've got that. Street cat. Sorry? Yeah. No, I was going to say we where I live here in Golden Bay, we've got this, so there's a lot of sheep farms around and so we've got this massive population of stray cats that is huge and they reckon it's because they're eating all the the sheep placentas that are lying around and that feeds them so well like because there's so many sheep being born here we've got like this rat pack back and they seem to be doing all right they live like amongst sheep farms and yeah so when you meet them they're quite hostile but they're not like they need any help so they're almost like you know how we've domesticated these wildcats and they're now suddenly this is oh the next God. stage of evolution you have yeah but... fueled cats <laughs> exactly <laughs> i think we could make like a little sort of a documentary film about them <laughs> regaining their independence <laughs> And then haunting yeah. their former, yeah, the exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. That's a great name for it. Um, so Natalie, I gave a bit of a background to you in the intro, but what I kind of always do is to get a feel for like your origin story, like what led you to do what you're doing now? Like where were you born? How did you grow up? What was your relationship with animals? That kind of thing. Yeah. What was your passion? Yeah, sure. Um, you want to delve into it now? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I was born in Melbourne um, and I grew up about 25 to 30 minutes outside the city uh, yeah. with my sister and parents. And um, I spent a lot of times out, uh, outdoors, a lot of time camping with my family, um, big animal lover, uh, very adventurous and yeah. um I guess, yeah, from an early age, I was very interested in um, animals, environment, nature, um, and really engaging with the, the outdoors world. Yeah. Can you remember a first time when you were younger when you realised that there's something happening with animals in the world, that they're not, that they're kind of in danger, that extinction things were happening? Were um, you aware of that as from a child? Um. As a child, probably not so much. I was more um, engaged in or aware of animal cruelty and yeah. um, so trying to um, being really conscious of it on an individual micro level, you know, rescuing frogs yeah. or something like that. But I, I, it wasn't until my late teens that I was engaged in uh, conservation or aware of mass extinction in a more macro level. Yeah. Can you remember what sparked that? Was it oh, I, in school? I yes. I, well, I don't know. It was. I was always interested, but there is one particular event, um, and I think it was oh, when I was in my late teens and I went to Borneo. And well, long story short, I had my underwear stolen by an orangutan. 
<laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and so I, after I finished school, I, I wanted to travel the world and I wanted to engage with wildlife and nature. And so I first went to Sri Lanka and worked in an elephant orphanage um, and then got involved with a street dog charity. And then after that, I went to Borneo and I worked at an orangutan rehabilitation centre. And yeah. I had my accommodation, um, my little guest house, which was on the, the edge of the jungle. And we had a range of orangutans at the centre. So some were wild, some were rehabilitated, some were semi-rehabilitated and some were um, had, had just been rescued and were going through the rehabilitation process. And yeah. I used to hang my washing out on my um, clothesline on my balcony and one afternoon I looked outside and there was a semi-rehabilitated, well, he was meant to be a wild orangutan and yeah. he was, I guess, somewhat unsuccessfully rehabilitated because he kept returning to the, the centre um, and he yeah. was sitting on my balcony and he had my um, jogging pants draped around his shoulders and had my underwear wrapped around <laughs> his neck. And so I've, I've run outside and his name was Amazing. Nico and I've run outside and I've tried to grab my underwear, but orangutans, they're five times stronger than the average human of male. So course. I had no chance. So I ended up playing tug of war with this fully grown orangutan. Um, oh and now he is wandering the jungles of Borneo with my underwear. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> um, and he was wearing your jogging pants like a scarf, so you yes. had a bit of a fashion sense. Yeah, he wore them well. But I think that it was that sort of experience that, um, and I think almost it's really common when you have that that personal experience that uh, that ignites your your passion for a cause. Yeah. And for me, it was just seeing real life um, the tragedies that were unfolding in Borneo and all over the world yeah. and the challenges that wildlife face and also the just the intelligence of these species. Um, not, yeah. not that a species needs to be intelligent for us to, to care, but yeah. it was, um, yeah, that, that was a, a particularly critical moment, I guess, in my wow. towards wildlife. Yeah, that's like your formative. So in Borneo, that's because of the, they're getting displaced because of all the palm oil yeah that, is that what it is yeah that, was that, that back then as well when you were in your teens oh yeah was it, it was um catastrophic even just flying over borneo um you just see i guess from a bird's eye view palm oil plantations very small amounts of rainforest and they have just completely taken over um it, yeah it's it's really startling so yeah and when and, and in palm oil plantations really the only wildlife that thrives there or animals that thrive there are snakes and rats um so wow yeah it's um they have not good for biodiversity. biodiversity yeah yeah and so and in sri lanka you were how did you get involved with that yeah. the elephant oh it was interesting so i just it was just google um <laughs> oh amazing yeah, yeah. Well, google contacted a bunch of places and there was an elephant orphanage but um, and, I, and I volunteered there and it was really interesting. It actually, it opened my eyes a lot to some of the challenges with uh, volunteerism um, where... Uh, volunteerism, uh, is yes, that a word? Where yeah. you, and a lot of organisations that will have to, will try to raise awareness for an endangered species, but they have to, in order to get that awareness, they almost have to exploit the species. So, you know, come and cuddle our elephants and that raises... Yeah, exactly. So, um, it, it was a really interesting experience for me. Um, but 
what what did come out of that was I while I was working there there was a street dog that used to follow me around everywhere and try and sleep in my bed and um, he was covered in he, he had mange so he, he had a really bad skin infection um, yeah and so I went looking around to see if there were any vets in the area that I could get him treated and I was so naive at the time and I um, and everyone said well we have so we have millions of street dogs here they all have some level of um, infection you know, you, you're coming, white Westerners coming to our country, not really understanding the context. And it, it was completely yeah. true. But I ended up seeing a, a pamphlet um, on a window, a tiny pamphlet, and it was for an organisation. Sorry, it wasn't an organisation. It was for a woman who was providing free veterinary care to a lot of street dogs. So I contacted yeah. her and I said, how can I help? I want to get involved. Um and anyway, she thought, oh, I don't need another volunteer. You have all of these people yeah. come over and they, they, don't, they help for one week and then they go on to something else. Um, but anyway, it ended up, I ended up starting as a volunteer and 15 years later I'm still involved. Um, now they're one of the largest nonprofits or NGOs operating in Sri Lanka, the UK and Australia. Um, wow. Vaccinated That's... and desexed over 100,000 animals oh my lord wow became the ceo in australia um sat on the board and it just um so it it was a really (laughs) it was incredible i went there to volunteer with elephants and ended up becoming the ceo of a um (laughs) non-profit with dogs that's incredible so that's the is that the dog star foundation is that yeah yeah it is and that now operates where so they're based in Sri Lanka, um, but they yep. have huge, um, or they have headquarters also in Australia and UK. But that's predominantly for fundraising efforts. But the, the main yeah is in Sri Lanka. It's focusing on incredible. And are you still in contact with this vet? Yeah, she's still yeah, yeah, she's, she's still so part amazing. of the organisation. She's leading it. Um, oh man, that's she's amazing! She's the most incredible woman. I. Two years ago, well, I shouldn't make this about me, but I will because I think it's important to elevate women. I nominated her for a, um, a British Order Award, and she won it. Yeah. She won it last year. So she's no way a humble woman you'd ever meet. She would never celebrate herself. Um, yeah, and I think that well, she needs to be celebrated. Um, it just meant it drove a lot more her that recognition for her drives a lot more attention and awareness for this incredible organisation that she started. So. Um, yeah wow her name's samantha green and she's brilliant samantha green shout out to samantha (laughs) does she so she still lives in sri lanka then yes yes she does incredible and so this all came about from you having a dog following you around that is such a (laughs) neat little story and and also the persistence that you because obviously, yeah, she was like, yeah, people come there and they just want to make feel good for a week and then go back to their yeah, lives. Yeah. But you actually stuck with it. Yeah. Um, incredible. So leading on from that, you then came back from Borneo and Sri Lanka with all this newfound passion and you went, did you, did you do journalism or something? Yeah, so- I studied and I did an undergrad in journalism, um, which yeah. I finished. I did my final exam while I was in Borneo. Um, oh, wow. Okay. So that was happening at the same time. Yeah. And then I came back and started my uh, master's degree in international relations. Uh, yeah. I was interested in being a foreign correspondent. Um, yeah. But while I was doing my master's, I ended up setting up my current organization called My Green World. 
Um, yep. And that was off the back of Sri Lanka and Borneo. Um, ah. Yeah. And so I, I went off path. I didn't become, spoiler alert, I didn't become a foreign correspondent. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably a very good thing. Um, <laughs> I have, in, in two weeks, I'm interviewing a woman, Tracy Alexander, she lives in Israel now, and she was, she did what you were going to embark on, became a foreign correspondent, and yeah, got burnt out, and now does something completely different, so oh, wow. I think you would have, you would have probably struggled a lot with the corporate side, and the just, you know, the angle of getting the, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, and it's all yes. quite, yeah. It looks amazing and you think you can do something, but ultimately you're at the behest of these massive multinational corporations. And yes, absolutely. I think what you're doing is, yeah, a lot for, more useful for the planet. And oh, I was going to say, so first of all, you're an amazing writer. So I'm going to urge the people listening to Hi. actually find some of the things that you've oh, written. I'll, so I'll post some. Now you've got a really, really good voice and that's, it's not an easy thing to find. A lot of writing, especially in journalism nowadays, is very generic, and you can tell that you've you've got heart and you put that into your writing. It oh, resonates. Thank so, thank you so um, much. Yeah, I wanted to inspire you to write more, and that's why I'm, I think we spoke a little bit about a book, which we can talk about a bit yes. later. But yeah. um, I was going to ask when you. Obviously, what you're doing is quite unique. So you, there's not many sort of organizations in the world that would have been, you know, where you could have gone, oh, that's, that'll be my beacon or my lighthouse, and I'll try and orient. You kind of, you would have been making your own path with this. And I was going to ask, how did you get help? Or did how did you even go about yeah. starting it? Yeah, it was, it was really interesting, actually. And um, I have to say, I think it was a combination of me being incredibly naive um, and really, really optimistic and potentially even arrogant. But I don't think it was arrogance. I think it was naive. No. Um, but <laughs> I, I, um, it, it was just on the back, after coming back from Borneo when I was engaging more and more with uh, wildlife conservation forums and doing a lot of my own research, um, and while I was at university, I, I just thought of an idea. I thought oh, um, it was it was during a time when there were a lot of apps coming out like Angry Birds and Sims um, that were yeah. getting a lot of popularity, um, but they didn't really have much environment or any environmental or social value. There were these addictive games that kids were obsessed with, um, yeah. but they weren't adding any any uh, anything to society, I, I didn't think, <laughs> you know. No. And so I thought, oh, what if there was a great, what if there was a game that was just as engaging as Angry Birds or Sims, but it was educational and also had real life um, impacts on charities and wildlife populations and environment. And so I started storyboarding some ideas and ended up coming up with an idea for an app, which is called World of the Wild. And it essentially is similar to um, The Sims, where you can build your own world and um, in that world you can rescue a range of um, endangered species, um, help them flourish in the wild, you can clean up oil spills and rubbish, um, build yeah. your own habitats, but each animal in the app represented a real-life grassroots charity. So, for example, Miko the orangutan wow. featured in the app and you could learn about Miko, you could learn about the charity that he represented, which was Borneo Orangutan Survival. You can 
You could donate to Borneo Orangutan Survival through the app. You could yeah. um, connect with other players and challenge them to pop quizzes about wildlife and the environment. Um, Amazing. And so, yeah, that it, that all started. It just started with an app, and it was, um, <laughs> God, it was the most. It's probably a thing that I that exhausted me the most and broke me the most, but something I'm most proud of in that. I had no, I had no money. I was a university student, still yeah. with my parents. Um, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I had no business experience. I had no um, formal education in environment or biodiversity. It was just raw passion. Um, yeah. And so I, I just went full steam ahead. I started contacting charities. I started contacting app developers. I started researching how to to code, to do designs. Um, I storyboarded my app. Um, I figured, tried to learn marketing and I just did this sort of rapid upskilling. And through the fundraising phase, I ended up selling my car um, and then running a fundraiser. Wow. Event. And then my sister lent me $11,000. Um, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Go, sister. I did a whole bunch of fundraising activities. I contacted company organizations. I did applied for small grants, and I sort of just got all of these little bits of funding put together. Um, I, yeah, I got a, an, another job, and I ended up paying for this app to get built. Um, wow. Where was it built? Well, it, it was built with a firm called Bazinga, which yeah. then ended up in a le I ended up in a legal battle over, and they've now oh, goodness. gone into liquidation because they'd had some. Well, I guess they probably had some difficult relationships with their some of their other clients as well. Yeah. Um, oh, so Bazinga went into liquidation. Yeah, they went into liquidation. It was a wow, so drama. <laughs> But it was a Jesus. learning experience to put all of my money and my soul into this app. Yeah. Um, and and then it, it it launched and there were all of these problems and um, technical problems. Yeah. And, and then it sort of got taken off the app store and then we put it back on. And so it was just one of the most trying times in my life, especially when oh, I can imagine. just an organization. It was a, an extension of myself. So I was so invested in it. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> so you're like your baby. Exactly. I wouldn't say exactly that it was arrogance. In Yiddish, you say chutzpah. Have you ever heard that expression? Yeah, I have. That's what you had. Yeah. Like oh. just this real exactly. self-belief. And honestly, nothing gets done without that, you know? And so that's why I think it's, that's what, drove you forward and especially in those moments where everything is going wrong that's what keeps you buoyant it's kind of like this immense belief in what you can do and so you charge through that and i think almost in order to for especially the apps and anything that's new or even books when you're writing them you're giving your soul so and this world is all about struggle, right? Every major religion in the world has recognized that, especially Buddhism. And so I think you almost, it's never gonna be smooth, right? And if it is smooth, you're doing something wrong, I almost think, you know, like that struggle is part of the whole thing and it gets better because of that. I know it sounds terrible. No, I, I can't. Whatever, but, um, so what was it that ultimately, you know, drove you to try and push this forward as a as a sort of because it's something that you also you're sustaining 
your foundation through this. So how did you make the transition? Did you contact the education sector? I'm not saying to make it profitable, but to make yeah. it a viable. Yeah, oh, how yeah, did you go no, about absolutely. that? So I, I saw it as I genuinely believe that this was a, a, a positive contribution to the world. I I mean, I, I went completely broken <laughs> over this. Yeah. I'm lucky I had a safety net. So I had that sort of that the privilege of having a very loving family who um, I could, you know, I would never be homeless. I would move in with my parents. But I yeah, but still, you know, you don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> like last resort. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I genuinely believed that it was something really unique and exciting that could um change the way that we approach business i wanted it to be um a, an organization that wasn't just a non-profit that wasn't just doing good but that could prove that you could do good and make money from it and yeah um and i think that there was a part of me and i i, I still have it today where people have always put environment and wildlife as a, a, a sort of a They've seen it as being weak um, or less. Yeah, it's flat. No, it's not I real see what business. You mean. Um, and there's this widespread view that uh, economic development and environmental sustainability and biodiversity are incompatible. And so I really dispute that. And I was really keen to to be able to make money, make my livelihood out of doing good. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think that that was one of the the main drivers, but. Other than that, it was just um, I was so invested and thought that it would genuinely have great outcomes. And the feedback along the way was really positive. Every day I was engaging with nonprofits. I was engaging. I mean, I emailed everybody, schools, yeah. charities. I worked with kids, schools, interviewed a bunch of kids. It was um, government. It, yeah, I reached out to, to, to everyone who could. <laughs> yeah. Where did you get the greatest responsiveness from? Kids. Kids, yeah. Kids. I was going to ask, so did you, what do you call it when you try something out on something? They do it in movies a lot. What's like, that called? Like when you user, try. User test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a testing. Yeah. Did you do that with the kids when you were storyboarding yeah. and develop it? Yeah. So yeah. you involved them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Amazing. And they love it. They, uh, I love, like the kids love hearing the, real life stories about Miko the orangutan and how it's gamified and yeah. it's a combination of wildlife and environment and technology and education and games and kids love that. Yeah. Um, so I just recently had a another amazing woman, Celia Litvin, who's a psychologist who's developed an app for mental health, kind of in a similar vein as yours. Like it's yeah. to help people with depression and anxiety, trying to do good. And she told me the difference between gamifying and gamification. So like you're trying to make your app as sticky as possible, but you're not, you don't want to make it a, you want them to learn from it at the same time. It's not this mindless angry birds yes. thing. Yes. And I guess that's the real, that's the real, the crux of trying, if you can nail that, and it's such a fine line between it being a boring school education, oh, I'm doing homework here, yeah. to, oh, this is really fun, I want to do this. So I guess, I mean, how did you, did you employ psychologists to find how to, or how did you, or did you just go on a whim and be like, this is what I would like to play, so, um, yeah. You know, I didn't employ psychologists. So it was mainly talking with kids, mostly. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I'm, I'm a really big believer in, 
making sure that in your organisation and in your work that you're representing the the diverse voices across Australia. So if you run an organisation that's dedicated to kids, your yes. best bet is including kids in the conversation and the in the decision making as well. And and exactly, really yeah. anybody does that. When I, I had a um, an eight year old on my board of advisors, and people thought that was the strangest thing in the world. Wow. It's, it's important. He brings a really important voice to the table. He knows what kids want. He's he is a kid. Um, so yeah, Incredible. It, it was mainly engaging with it with kids and charities. And also, I didn't have there wasn't a huge amount of money, so I uh, it was somewhat instinct. Um, but talking, just talking about it, researching, and talking to kids and their parents. So that's a. How did you know this kid? Just I, I was um, I was introduced to him through a, a fellow social entrepreneur, um, and he yeah. his name's Isaac, and he was he won an award yeah. for at for, through Zoos Victoria for being a wildlife warrior, and he was um, he'd been in a news this eight year old kid Isaac. Oh yeah, yeah, he's impressive. He he wow. just he'd been in a news article for just his dedication to wildlife um and i connected with him and he's Amazing. just he's incredible he um was yeah he had he just he and he came to board meetings and genuinely brought wonderful uh contributions he came with both his parents so they're fully supportive um, wow incredible. yeah he does he gave, gives powerpoint presentations about why he thinks wildlife is important and what what yeah. parents and, and older people need to be doing and what he would expect from us he runs fundraising campaigns so um yeah he's a, a really wonderful boy amazing so i reckon he's probably the youngest board member in the world <laughs> I mean, he wants to be superlatives. It could, yeah he could be he could be um so do you go about lobbying like, how are your ties to government? Do you ever have to engage politicians to do your, to yeah. help bring some of your whatever projects yeah. forward? I've engaged with government quite a bit. Um, so My Green World is an, um, an educational organisation, so we're not an activism organisation, yeah. though um, I've definitely played a, a role in um, activism, got roots in activism. But um, so yeah. I, I don't, I wouldn't say I've lobbied government, but engaged them quite a bit and there's been a lot of interest so um i've i've had meetings with a range of um government ministers and um sort of made made my case for environmental action um i've sort of submitted policy recommendations i've, I've had um wow had a funny had a really funny experience with we got contacted by the Chinese government um, years ago. What? They ended up flying to Australia um, to meet with me to learn more about my company and figure out what Australia is doing in the environment. And I was, I had a team that was all virtual. I was the only person in Melbourne and I was meant to be hosting 20 people from the Chinese government. Oh, my goodness. And then I, and then it I was doesn't I seem like I'm a movie. I know. I had to hire a boardroom and then... I thought, I, mean, I can't, and then I had done this. Get yeah, Isaac to come along. <laughs> yeah. I had to do this cultural, I was, I think, oh, there's, there's cultural differences in how we do business and um, yeah. the person that's leading the meeting can't be the person that opens the door. 
So wow. I so then I, I got somebody to just be the person that greets the Chinese government and helps them enter the room, and then I was standing there <laughs> like a paid room. actor. Yes, yes. <laughs> and they don't they didn't speak English. I didn't speak Chinese. What? So um, we had a tra- they bought a translator. Yeah. Um, and I gave them a presentation on my green world, and then they asked me if I could help them save the the snow leopard in China. Oh my goodness! And I said, "Well, I'm 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 not a magician." (laughs) (laughs) Oh my, that is incredible, Natalie. Do you know how they got how they found out about you? No, just because of your high profile in Australia. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't think I had a high profile in Australia. I don't know. But a similar thing happened with the Russian government as well. And I went to Russia. What? Yeah, it's been a so. It's funny, of all, all the countries in the world, Russia and China were the most interested in learning about a young woman. That is bizarre. A young woman who is running an environmental organisation in Australia. Um, yeah. Of, of everyone in the world, the two most <laughs> unlikely yeah, yeah. counterparts. So what, they flew you to Russia? Yeah. Sorry? Oh, you've broken up a bit. hear me oh yeah I can we hear can you. edit this out i was gonna ask yeah is it okay yep yep uh, the specific animal was that the russians wanted you to say <laughs> well the um they were i spoke at the st petersburg it was for the st petersburg international economic forum and um vladimir putin was there and so was xi jinping and they spoke at it um, what I know it, it was incredible. So I went and I was one of the only women at the event. Um, and yeah, I spoke about education and environment predominantly and, and the future economy. Um, and I was, <laughs> I made a case. My case was that we need to have more inclusive education and we need to start elevating more diverse members of the community into our education system. And then I made the example of how, um, young Isaac, young eight-year-old Isaac was on my, my board and they were just astounded. <laughs> they thought that that was the most amazing. Like, what do you mean? Yeah. An eight-year-old's on the board. Um, so it, that would have blown them away. <laughs> yeah, but it was, um, it was truly, it was the most fascinating experience in St. Peter. Oh, I can imagine. Gorgeous. Um, yeah, I, I, had, I had the time of my life there. It was one of my best travel experiences for sure. Um, and not only so, you would have been a positive role model in not only the biodiversity and saving the environment and animals, you would have also given them a, a nice little lesson on female empowerment in business and, you know, because that would have been something for them that they, they're not very used to, having women in powerful positions, especially the Chinese. Yeah, I so, hope so. You would have had a very positive effect there. Yeah, I I think, um, and even, I mean, even in Australia, when I first started out, it was, um, I used to go to startup events and um, people would ask my my partner what his company was, as if I was. Oh, wow. Um, And so, yeah, I I think that around the world, particularly um, at that time, you know, starting to change a little bit more in a positive direction now, but yeah, it was it was rare, and it still is slightly rare to um, 
to see women in uh, leadership positions or particularly in the startup and technology sector. Uh, yeah. Incredible. So did you ever follow up with China on the snow leopard thing or did that <laughs> trickle? <laughs> no, not really, but I did end up. Uh, my the Me and the mayor, and I can't remember what province he's from, but I was, um, what's, I've forgotten what the app's called. It's an app that translates. Um, oh, it, it's sort of babble. It's like WhatsApp, but we used to message each other and just send pictures of our dogs to each other for a while. So, oh wow, that was oh the, the Chinese equivalent of it. Yeah, yeah, I think I know what you mean. It's like yeah. me, me, we, or something. Yeah, like yeah, something like that. Yeah. So we we just texted each other photos of our dogs every now and then. Um, <laughs> Amazing. But no, I couldn't commit to saving the, the snow leopard. <laughs> no, it was been massive. But and I mean the snow leopard is also I think it's in Mongolia and Russia as yeah, well. Yeah. I've got um a friend of mine from when I was a little kid living in Munich, Jonathan Slat, he is he works at the University of Minnesota and he's like the world's foremost expert on fish owls, which is the largest species of owl in the world, which yeah. are also going extinct. And he learned fluent Russian and flew out to this area called the Primorye, which is one of the main habits of the fish owl. And he established relations there with everyone, with the main timber companies that were doing all the felling of the main habitat of the fish owl. And he's now through no, I mean, he, his ambition was to study this animal because he was doing his PhD, but he's now, he's written a great book. I'll send you the link to it. Yeah. Um, through doing his PhD and researching, it's called Owls of the Eastern Ice, he ended up basically single-handedly saving this habitat for this fish owl. Which, So his oh. ambition obviously was to study it from a biological perspective. The conservation angle was obviously, yeah, it was there, but it was more scientific. And just purely because of the work he was doing and the Russians being so amazed that there's this crazy American guy going around Primoria, this pretty dangerous, like minus 20 Celsius area where people go into the forest, get lost and die all the time. He was out there studying this like super remote animal. And now the numbers have just bounced back. And so that's like another like, oh. you know, he's written this book. I'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I've just Googled him and I can book see copy. the owl man. Jonathan. The owl man, yeah. yeah. So I went to school with him in Munich. Yeah, I've known him since I, we were six years old and just stayed in contact. And so his passion was owls and he went out and, you know, and when we were kids, we would constantly talk about animals. And my favorite animal was the shark. And so I ended up in New Zealand and I petitioned the government in 2014. We started, we created the National Shark Alliance and we got the government to ban shark finning in New Zealand. And that was literally a handful of us. Yeah, I got this woman, Ocean Ramsey, who's also going to come oh, on our yeah. podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's an old friend of mine as well. So I got her to flown to New Zealand to talk to our parliament. And obviously, she's an amazing public speaker. So we had her here. We got her on television. We got her on, like, the 60-minute equivalent in New Zealand and created major ruckus, planted all these articles in the Herald and everywhere, and yeah, lo and behold, a year later, they decided no more shark finning in New Zealand waters, which That's is one of the fantastic. largest international water um, boundaries in the world. So, oh, yeah, and the chance. I know. I mean, but this was also another thing. Like, 
like with you, it was was not my intent. Like, I didn't even think that that was something that was possible. Yeah. I just loved sharks so much. And like, so I was just like, Ocean, what can we do? And it was all of us came together and we're like, okay, let's see how we can do this. None of us had experience in activism. We got the head of Oceans, Carly Thomas, big shout out to her um, from Greenpeace. She got on board and kind of helped us, steered us in the right direction. And to be honest, like it was a no brainer. Like people in New Zealand couldn't believe that shark finning was still a thing yeah. like that, you know, in 2014, like you would have thought like, Oh, that would have been, you know, everyone's like, Oh, that's disgusting. The practice. And, you know, yeah. but Natalie, it still happens in Australia yeah, in certain yeah. areas. Oh, and God, I know. so that was the, our next project was to go and try, but it's hard, right? Like Australia is, and obviously, and this is the thing it's got, because there'd be no fatal shark attacks. Well, there's been one in New Zealand. But in Australia, shark attacks are quite... So the animal has a completely different... Yeah, the, the public perception of it yeah. is different, right? Yeah. And so what our goal was to, we said, was to rebrand the animal. And that we're still working on that. We're yeah. still moving forward. But like, Australia was a difficult one to... That's why I was asking you, like, how did you go about? Yeah, let's like, let's do it. Let's set up a working group in Australia. Yes, thank you very. I'm oh my god, I would absolutely love that. That would be incredible. And Ocean would be so. Yeah, she's got a couple of ties to Perth, and so yeah, yeah. excellent. So we can move in on that. Yeah, we've got to get um, some of the surfers engaged. Um, I, I know, and this is the thing, like Natalie, a lot of these surfers, especially the ones who've been attacked, none of them hold. No. resentment towards okay, the animal they're, they're shark activists exactly yeah they become activists there's a guy mike coots his name is and he's i think he's in south africa now he got his leg bitten off and he is now like one of the biggest spokesmen going i know what i did i went into their habitat it's like you walking on a freeway and there's cars driving past like yeah. it's just the same yeah anyway um what i was going to say so your ties from my green world you got it somehow you got involved in the educational sector as well was that by getting schools to embrace the app the yeah. game or was uh, it how did you go about that partly there were a few schools actually in the u.s that were interested in embedding the app but um the main so what, what was the word you just used vetting embedded Oh, embedding. Yeah, All right, okay. so yeah. what happened was I said, I started the app and I, I did everything backwards. I started the app and then I registered a company around the app, um, <laughs> <laughs> which isn't the way you meant to do business. Hey, who cares? <laughs> you did it your way. <laughs> but um, So after I built the app, I um, worked to develop an online education program. So that's called Kids Corner. And it covers a range of topics related to environment and biodiversity from uh, grades four up to year 10. Um, so okay. it aligns the Australian curriculum and, and teaches kids anything from what biodiversity is, from ecosystems and habitats to, um, you know, Africa's endangered species, Australia's endangered species to marine life, ocean life, um, and so that was yeah. a, a range of materials and um, infographics and videos and booklets that was all digital um, aimed at yeah. sort of making wildlife and environmental science and education fun, accessible and cool. Yeah. Uh, so that was, that was when I started engaging more with uh, Australian education 
providers. Um, but it was also, I think, from day one, our biggest supporters and most active customers were kids and their parents outside of school in particular. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 So as the kids driving it forward. And so Kids Corner is then, it's something that's separate from the game. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So yeah. it's My Green World and then two, um, I guess, two separate initiatives. One is the the game, which is currently offline, um, and the other is... World of the Wild. Yeah. 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 And the other is Kids Corner, our, um, our online education program. And has that been embedded in the curriculum in Australia? So not at the moment we've got, it's when I, I joined PwC a few years ago and since yep. then I've taken more of a, um, a backseat with my green world um, yep. to explore other ways in which I can try and influence environmental policy. So yep. it's not in schools at the moment. No, it's more sitting with, um, it's just, we, we just have sort of on, an ongoing subscription model and then when COVID yep. hit, I, I took the paywall down. So it's sort of free for everybody. Um. Nice one, guys. As I mentioned in the intro of the show, this episode was unfortunately cut short due to technical difficulties really sorry for that but yeah natalie has said that she will be able to come on again so we can look forward to that um yeah so please check out her my green world um i'll put all that in the bio and have a look at kids corner if you're working in the education sector as a teacher or even as a principal or counselor see if you can get your school to implement some of these really great little classroom techniques that she's put in a lot of work into the paywall has been lifted ever since the covid pandemic which is phenomenal and yeah check her out and also the game um the wild world game which is currently being redesigned so that'll be up and running soon i'll put a post out when that happens yeah so once again super thank you to natalie for giving us her time and hopefully as i said we'll get her on the show again um, next week, I'll be talking to Tracy Alexander on episode seven. Um, Tracy is uh, meditation and mindfulness. What would you say? Liaison guru consultant who works out of Tel Aviv, Israel. She's originally also from Australia and was a TV anchor and presenter and journalist for several years before she decided to pivot out of that game and become yeah, a full-on meditation teacher and mindfulness guru, however you want to call it. So yeah, you've got that to look forward to. And yeah, super, th- super duper thank you to Natalie. And hopefully we can have you on again. So till next time, guys. Kia ora, Tefano, and Maori ora. Aroha nui.